hey, suspect listeners. Is that good, you guys? <laughs> Probably not. Hi, welcome back. It's your host, Katie. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode. you guys enjoyed the last episode my political rants i wanted to talk about this in the last episode but completely forgot because i just started venting (laughs) but so you guys on hulu there's this show called american crime story and it is by ryan murphy who is the same guy who wrote american horror story american horror stories you know the little popular fx shows that a lot of people like which might I add, are quite incredible. Ryan Murphy, for those of you who have never seen anything that he's done, he is a fantastic writer, fantastic producer. He always has a good cast. He really is just amazing. Like, I don't know. I love the way he writes. I love the way his mind works. Like, when it comes to, like, writing these scripts, I think that it's just the perfect amount of, like, fucked up and scary and intriguing like all at the same time so and don't get me wrong there have been a couple seasons of American Horror Story where I'm like "Ah." um but for the most part like the writing is fantastic even the seasons of American Horror Story that I didn't like like the writing was still good you know like it just wasn't like I didn't fuck with the clowns I don't fuck with clowns (laughs) I really just don't fuck with clowns at all But yeah, so Ryan Murphy wrote American Crime Story, which is three seasons, um, and basically they're reenacting actual crime stories that have happened. So every season is a different story. So season one is The People versus O.J. Simpson. Season two is The Murder of Versace. And season three is Bill Clinton and the story of Monica Lewinsky, basically. So... So, yeah, it's really crazy. I was kind of like, I didn't know, one, that Ryan Murphy wrote it until literally, like, a couple days ago. But I was kind of, like, weary on watching it because I'm really, like, I know you guys know I watch a lot of crime stuff. But here's the problem is that I don't just watch anything crime-related on TV. Like, it really does have to be written well and portrayed well and, like, have good actors or be the real story or whatever the case is so I'm very picky and I've seen this on my homepage for like two or three months now but the last season is the impeachment season of Bill Clinton so I just kept seeing impeachment and I thought I don't know I don't know what I thought I never clicked on it I just thought that I didn't want to watch anything like that so I just kept passing over it So one day I clicked on it, like one day last week, and I saw that they were all different stories. So I start looking into it and see that it's written by Ryan Murphy and basically see that like some of my favorite actors and actresses are in this fucking TV show. Like, not to name drop, but Sarah Paulson, who is just amazing and can play any fucking role. I mean, really, any actor or actress that Ryan Murphy is casting can play the fuck out of any role that they're given. And I think that that is what I admire so much about, like, who he he does pick for casting. Because you guys know with American Horror Story, like, every season is a different theme, and those actors just have to kind of switch to whatever their role is for that season. Um, It's kind of the same thing here. So really, really great acting, great acting, so spot on. Because you guys have to remember, like, These are real stories. So the media that they're getting back at this time, the newspaper articles, like whatever it was, like they're recreating this in the show, like outfits, like hairstyles. And it is like 
spot on spot on the guy that played versace looked a lot like versace um i mean just all the way through for every season i have so many things i could say i i know i started with the versace season just because like i have read up a lot on the oj season and at that time i didn't realize that it was a reenactment i just thought still it was like a documentary type thing so i started with versace and then i realized okay hey ryan murphy wrote this it's a reenactment so i went versace impeachment of bill clinton and now i'm on oj i think i'm on like episode four or five so like halfway through but you guys so fucking good like so spot on to like what actually happened just fucking incredible so i definitely recommend that you guys go check that out um let me know what you think and i think that they're coming out with a new season hopefully sometime this year either way we know that there should be a new season of american horror story this year so hopefully we get american crime story as well i'm telling you guys it is so so good i'm gonna be sad when i finish it i like just love ryan murphy so much as like a writer and a producer that like it was perfect that he like did this crime show like because it was just right up my alley and I already really like his um I already really like his writing so yeah that's like that was like perfect world for me (laughs) also I'm sure most of you guys know but he also is writing like a Jeffrey Dahmer series and this supposedly Evan Peters is supposed to be playing Jeffrey Dahmer so um i'm excited for that because like i mentioned everybody that he cast plays the fuck out of their role and i i love that play your fucking role play your part play your part that should be a fucking i mean that is a saying but i'm saying that should be everybody's motto in every (laughs) essence that they do play your fucking part play your part so yeah i wanted to mention that to you guys last episode but i just decided to go on um, a political rant so we're not gonna do that this week deep breath okay cool so if you guys are listening to this it's probably friday if you're listening on the day that it drops um happy friday to everybody listening hope that your week was super smooth and you're ready for the weekend enjoy your much deserved time off so didn't really do much this week like I mentioned next week is back to the grind for me so I'll be sitting down this weekend making a schedule for what days I'm going to record I'm going to stick to trying to release on Mondays Wednesdays and Fridays moving forward I know I did not do that this week I like I mentioned I had to get fingerprints and stuff done so I'm thinking that I can do that, you guys, and we, we can do it. We can do it. We can do it. I know I can do it. So consistency is everything, you guys. We are almost to 50 episodes. Um, the last episode was 40. This is 41, and we're going. We're going to keep going. Somebody I watch on YouTube says, just get to 100 episodes. Just keep going till you get to 100. I mean, keep going after you get to 100, you know, but once you hit 100, like, that's it. Like, you – can officially say that you've been consistent and you've been at it. So, um, yeah, Suspects two-year anniversary is coming up on the 26th. And I think I'm going to release a different episode for that. So I'm going to try to drop one on the 26th, which is Saturday. Yeah, that's Saturday. So, um, yeah, maybe we'll do like a special weekend episode and maybe we'll do something a little different for the two-year episode. I don't know yet. We'll see. I'll try to think of something after I get done recording today. But if you guys have any ideas for the two-year episode, definitely reach out to me. If you have any questions that 
you maybe want answered about that you maybe want answered about the podcast, about me personally, about anything, like please send those over to me because I'll definitely answer them on here. I cannot believe that it's almost been two years since I started this podcast, you guys. I mean, if you're a new listener and you haven't listened to all the episodes, I don't know, but um, I just decided to start this podcast like at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, I just moved to Colorado. I didn't really know anybody. You guys, I moved here in January and by like the end of February, the pandemic was heading. So I really couldn't do anything. I couldn't explore, you know, the way that I wanted to in this fucking new city that I mean, I had been to before, but like the city that I moved to, like because I wanted to be here. So I didn't really get the chance to explore. I was just kind of going to work and coming home every day. And, you know, it was hard being in a new city, being away from pretty much everybody I know besides Gabby. Um, so I started listening to a lot of podcasts to kind of pass the time at work and kind of just like not feel so alone, I guess. I don't know. I find comfort in people talking. So that's really what it was for me. It was just like hearing people talking. Um, and then I listened to so many podcasts that I just decided to start one. I literally was just like texted Hannah, my friend, and I was like, you want to start a crime podcast? And she was like, sure. And we did not have any equipment, no real plans for the podcast, nothing. We were just, you know, hey, we're going to get together once or twice a week and we're going to each pick, pick a crime story and we're going to talk about that. Um, and it's just grown from there, you guys. You know, now I have a full mic set up and I have a logo. I have merch. Well, it's not available right now, but it will be soon. <laughs> I had merch that you guys bought. Like, I have so many, I mean, not so many listeners. I'm making myself sound like I'm just so popular. I have, I, I went from like four to 14,000 listeners, you know, and it's just really cool. It's a cool feeling you guys, because here's the thing. I was telling somebody this the other day, but when I was in high school, right, I was like, I don't know. I, Gabby will tell you that I was popular, but I, I don't call it that, right? I just knew a lot of people, I guess. But I guess that's just me trying to not sound stuck up and call myself popular. I knew a lot of people. I was friends with a lot of people. But I never feel – I never felt like I actually fit in. Like there was always something in all of my friend groups. And I'm sure like – I'm sure most of you listening know what I mean with like different friend groups. Like you have different friend groups that interact in like different things and that's fine. So in all my different friend groups, I literally just never felt like I fit in and I knew it was something. Like I never knew what it was, but I knew it was something. And so now to go from one, never feeling like I fit into school, never feeling like I fit into my family because I was always different and fucking very opinionated. Um, I'm just so happy to be here with you guys and share this moment, share these lessons, share the inspiration and to have 14,000 of you listening to my opinionated, annoying (laughs) self. Like I love you guys for that. It really means so much to me. I mean, some of you are people that I know personally. A lot of you are people that I don't know. And that's what makes it even more sweeter is that you guys are coming back every week and you have no idea who I am. Like I'm just, 
either a voice you like or a face you like or a logo you like or whatever the case may be. And I just want to say whatever your reason is for being here, thank you. I hope you know that I want you here, that no matter where you are in the world, like I see you, I hear you, I understand, and uh, I just love you guys. I really do, and I'm so, so fucking thankful that you see me. I have 14,000 besties that really, really do see me and like see my heart, and I go off on here sometimes, and I share my opinions and I'm very opinionated and I go off about that but like here's the thing is that it's all coming from a place of love it's all coming from a place of wanting good things to happen to everybody wanting equality wanting everybody to have good intentions so thank you for those that recognize that and for whoever left one star on my podcast I'm sorry. I'm sorry you didn't like me. I'm sorry. It probably was somebody that just actually didn't like me from high school that just did that. Or somebody who's like dating somebody I used to date or talk to. I don't fucking know. But either way, that's petty. So that's why, you guys, if you're listening to this right now, leave me a rating, please. Because I was at five stars and then somebody decided to be a little petty (laughs) and now it dropped so please go rate me five stars on apple podcast or spotify but apple podcast please and leave me a review make me smile yeah i just wanted to say thank you to you guys so two years of suspect from fucking zero listeners to fourteen thousand, and we're just gonna keep going you guys so I have so many things planned for the podcast, so many ways I want to use this platform to keep growing, to educate people. So thank you guys for seeing me a whole new world. That had nothing to do with what I was saying. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why Disney songs are just like in the back of my head, ready to fucking fire out whenever there's like a time of silence. (laughs) Part of your world. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into today's case. Okay, so the case that I have for you guys today is pretty wild. It is the case of Rose Larner murder. Um, It is the murder of Rose Larner. If you've heard the story, you know it's wild. Um, Obviously, very, very tragic. Um, And if you have not heard this story... um, Get, get ready it's def you guys hear the sirens in the back i don't know if i'm gonna be able to hear this when i'm playing it back you could probably definitely hear that that shit's loud as fuck bro they be driving by at all times of the night here in denver i mean go help the people you know go help the people but god dang what if we could have like a cooler sound you know like a Like when the when they go by. I don't know. Probably not. Okay, so the information that I'm going to be citing from today is from a good old Wikipedia and a Lansing State Journal article. Um, let me scroll down here. Okay, and this article was written in 2017 by Betsy J. Miner from the Lansing State Journal. It is titled, From 1997, The Story of Rose Larner, Her Life and Her Murder. So we're going to be reading through Betsy's article, and we're also going to be citing from Wikipedia as well. I will make sure, again, all of these articles are in the show notes so that you guys can reference as well. 
Okay, so part one of the Lansing State Journal article, who was Rose? Rose Larner slumbered all day and roamed all night with a rugged band of buddies on the streets of Lansing's southwest side. Her family called her the Vampire, a name that fit the wiry 18-year-old like her $60 blue jeans. Whew, $60 blue jeans. I remember in high school and I thought that was like so cool, you know, like going to Hollister and like getting like the dear $60 jeans. And now that like kills me, bro. I'm like, that's like six or seven times a Chick-fil-A just for one pair of jeans. <laughs> Why does my mind work like that? My mind works in Chick-fil-A. My mind works and how many, how many Chick-fil-A meals can I get out of that? <laughs> Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Rose was a whirlwind with a hair-trigger temper. She roamed about town doing pretty much whatever she wanted with whoever she wanted. She was mouthy and streetwise, fearless and friendly. The boys liked Rosa, and she liked them right back. Yeah, see, this is the thing about, like, young girls is, like, they're pretty boy crazy at this age, right? I mean, I definitely was 18. Like, oh my goodness, is the boy I liked texted me when I was 18 and told me to come over to his house? I didn't give a shit if it was 6 o'clock in the morning, midnight, 4 o'clock. I did not care. Like, I was going over there. I was going to his house. Like, (laughs) Diagnosed in her early teens as hyperactive, she stopped moving only to sleep, take three showers a day, and talk on the phone. Rose was a big-hearted pain who craved attention. Nearly everyone who knew her knew it. She could be a headache and a half, her mother Rose Markey said. If she were kidnapped for ransom, the kidnappers would pay me to take her back. (laughs) That's so funny. My dad used to tell me that all the time. He would, like, tell me to go outside and check the mail, and I'd be like, Dad, I'm going to get kidnapped. And he'd be like, nah, they'd they'd bring you back. (laughs) They'd bring you back. They'd pay me to take you back. This is the story of Rose Larner's 18 years. A life that ended December 7th, 1993, the day police say that she was strangled and dismembered. Her body burned to hide the homicide. Her story is of triumph and trouble, good and bad, promise and doubt. If you guys hear something in the background, my dog keeps moving, so I'm sorry. I think she knows I'm doing something. She shouldn't annoy me. It's like she was two totally different people, her former stepmom, Cheryl Larner, said. She wasn't every mother's dream, but she was generous. If you needed anything, she was there. Rose went to church twice a week, adored children, and clicked with the old folks. She wanted to be a cop like her Uncle Timmy in Wisconsin and liked making tuna noodle casserole for her two brothers. She always had her Bible, and she always knew her memory verse when she was little said Larner of Bath. When I said, who's going to help me set the table? Rose was the first one up off the couch. Rose loved the holidays, and at 18 years old, she hunted for Easter eggs with the same thrill she did when she was eight. This was me. Literally, I think I did Easter egg hunts until I was like 16 because my grandma would just put money in them at that point. Mm, So awful. Eight years old. 
That's about how old Rose was when she met up with Billy Brown for a rock-throwing battle beneath a tidy row of power lines. She grabbed a stone from the field near her Miller Road home and chucked it at a pack of boys across the way. Rose teamed with her brothers against the kids that they'd never met. We talked to them later and we found out that they were the Browns. They lived on Hughes Road, Rose's youngest brother, Jamie Larner, recalls. That was 1983. Rose, whose parents got divorced when she was about four, earned mostly A's and was unbeatable in the fourth grade spelling bees. For most of her years growing up, Rose spent more time on the phone than doing almost anything. She talked for hours to her friends, even friends of friends, anybody who would listen. Any number she could get, she would call, Marky said. Anytime you picked up the phone downstairs, it was hot, warm from her ear. Often her conversations were with Billy Brown, who became her fifth grade classmate at Maple Grove Elementary. They shared a school, a homeroom, teachers, and a friendship that they grew as they grew. They played tag and built tree forts, dug tunnels, and romped through the woods in and around Lansing's southern parks. Rose drew a heart in blue ink around his school photo in her Gardner Middle School yearbook and scrawled Billy between his schoolboy smirk. She liked him, and he liked her. By the eighth grade, their friendship was firm. They kept tabs by the phone and went to Gardner together, often strutting around their gritty neighborhood east of Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. A decade after that stone-throwing brawl across the open field, Brown says he stood and watched another man strangle the girl that he spent much of his young life with, then Brown says he helped the killer dispose of her body, and he helped clean up the mess. Rose had other friends, and freckle-faced Ginger Bailey ranked highest on the list. Bailey was a third grader when she met Rose and quickly learned her rough-and-tumble ways. We had a fight. I don't even know why. Then she came over and said, come outside and play hide-and-seek. Bailey said, she even helped me wash the dishes. Bailey became Rose's best friend, and their relationship included a series of hair-pulling brawls over issues too petty to even recall. We were inseparable. We liked to ride the bus to the mall, she said. We got in a fight a week, but we were still best friends. And this is how it is when you're a teenage girl. I mean, I don't know how it is for teenage boys, but when you're a teenage girl, you are constantly getting in stupid-ass fight with your friends, and then you just make up and <laughs> pretend like it never happened until it does next Thursday. <laughs> Ginger said Rose would always call and make up. They strolled to the quality dairy for frozen Cokes, gum, and half-priced ice cream every Tuesday. They perched on the sidewalk that looms over Miller Road between their houses, sharing gossip and stories, dreams, and disappointments. They even shared a birthday, August 19th. When Bailey spent the night at Rose's house, they would sneak out late and roam the neighborhood just to see what was up. Rose's dad, whose name is Bill Larner, says his only daughter was a pill, usually the one to start something at his house where she spent every other weekend. I always knew who the culprit was. She was a holy terror, he said. They'd be out playing in the yard and then a little yell would go out and Rosie had the voice that carried the most. He'd peek out the window, then trudge out to hear each side. I'd have to say, come on, Rose, Larner said. 
Through it all, she was the thoughtful one, and he had Father's Day coffee mugs to prove it. She always remembered, even when the other kids didn't, Larner said, his voice shaking. She was Daddy's little girl. Rose narrow line through her adolescence. She was giving and warm, hot-headed and temperamental. She and Ginger were cruising Cedar Streets in Rose's navy blue Ford Granada when they spotted a man clutching a cardboard sign that said, We'll work for food. Rose stopped the car. She got out and gave the guy $5, Bailey said. The same Rose Larner that gave to the poor had a mouth and an attitude. Rose didn't care what she said or who she said it to, retired Lansing police detective John Cowdy said. She had enemies. When Rose was 15, she used a fork to threaten a girl who pissed her off. Marky was away for the weekend. Rose had a party, drank some beer, and argued with the girl who had showed up for the fun. No one was hurt, but Marky was alarmed. She thought counseling might change Rose's difficult ways. So Rose's mom, Marky, who was a divorced mother of three, exaggerated her daughter's complicated personality so that she could admit her at Rivendell Psychiatric Hospital in St. John's, and she thought maybe it would bring some stability to her often turbulent household. Rosie had a tendency to pick up a shoe and throw it at her brothers or lock them outside until they had to break the windows to get back in, Marky said. She remembers sitting in the waiting room at Rivendell. Rose looked at me and said, Mom, this is a loony bin. Marky said, chuckling. I told her it was her choice to be admitted, and she said, okay. She used a pencil eraser at Rivendell to burn the letter B for Brody into her thigh. He was a patient, and Rose was smitten. She cried when she left after three months of new friendships, counseling, and attention. They liked her, Marky said. She felt safe there. So Rose goes home after leaving um, Rivendell, and she lands her first job at KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, on South Logan, and she has an attitude that her mother cannot forget. Marky says, she was testy. I think she wanted to be sent back. She got picked up at Hudson's for shoplifting, and she had alcohol at school. It was March 1991 when Rose left Everett and enrolled at Sexton High School, hoping that things would be different. She was 15, and she's just hoping to fit into a new school. She missed her friends, Billy Brown, and others, including Ginger, and she returned to Everett in the fall for the start of her junior year. Trouble dogged Rosie and threatened to undermine her dream of becoming a cop like her Uncle Timmy. At this time, Rose and Brown had remained friends, and when she turned 16, her Ford was a shuttle for her friends, including Brown. So Ginger Bailey, who was slender and athletic, she loved to shoot baskets at the Maple Grove. She and Rose were sinking jump shots there on a warm and carefree day when a man appeared near the tennis courts. Him and Rose began to have a little chat. They kept talking, so I started walking home, Bailey remembers. So later that day, Rose shows up at her front door, shaken, and her hazel eyes are filled with tears. She said she was raped. We called the police, Bailey said. Marky recalls looking at the gravel driveway and seeing Rose in the back seat of a Lansing police patrol car. She seemed embarrassed, and she didn't even want me to know, Marky said. She never wanted to talk about it much. The man accused pleaded guilty to a lesser charge and spent a month 
in jail. Rose still really wanted to be a police officer. She set her sights, and despite pushing the limits at home and in school, she did know the difference between right and wrong. For Mother's Day, she bought me a book at Myers. Marquis said. The clerk gave her $20, too much in change, and Rosie gave it back. I know she would have been a police officer someday. So Rosie drops out of high school in 1991, December 1991, and at 16, she enrolled at Harry Hill Center for Academics and Technology. She quits that same month. Rosie signs up for the U.S. Army, hoping that it would give her a better shot at getting into a police academy and waited to hear if Uncle Sam would want her. After more than a year away from high school, she enrolled in vocational training in Grand Rapids to finish her high school education. At 17, she lived there for a few months in a dorm with other girls. Rosie caught up with her math and English in a hurry and earned her general equivalency degree in June 1993, just as her Everett classmates were graduating. So summer's freedom came and Rosie reveled in it. She tested the waters and I found myself not sleeping, Marky said. Marky said that she set a 1 a.m. curfew and she used a pager to keep in touch with Rose and her two boys. I either wanted to be called or to see her so I didn't have to worry. And that's about the time that Rose met a local rapper named John Ortiz Cahoe. The handsome, dark-haired teen was a friend of the Brown Boys. He loved rap music and he liked Rose. She liked the funny and charismatic music maker. She was really into him. She talked about him like he was a god, Rose's older brother Bill remembers. She wanted to do anything that he wanted to do. So they began to date. She talked about wanting to be like John. She wanted to rap with him, Jamie Larner says. Rose Cahoe and Billy Brown spent hours together, mostly hanging out at the Browns' house, Bill Larner said. Everything always centered around the Browns, he said. I didn't like any direction she was heading. She did not want to listen. In September, Rose heard from the Army. They didn't want her despite her excellent grades. Army officials said that her stay at Rivendell and her eraser branded B made her undesirable. She cried for about half an hour one day, Marky said. Then she stuffed it, put it out of her mind. In October, she asked her mother if Cahoe, who was making a rap album, could move in. Rosie said he was a real nice guy and he needed a place to stay, Marky said. She was 18 and thought she'd push. Marky agreed and Cahoe joined her, Rose, and Jamie Larner in their cozy Cape Cod. He was nice. Then I found out he had guns in my house and he had lots of money. Wads of money laying on the table, Marky said. Marky turned him away shortly after she learned about the weapons. He was just hanging out there, and he had other places he could go, she said. I don't allow guns. Cahoe left the house and started backing away from Rose and their relationship. There was a breakup, basically, Michigan State Police Detective Don Brooks said. John was not giving her the time of day. She got mad because she had an interest in him, and he had no interest in her. It infuriated her, Brooks said. She spent her life for a couple of months trying to monitor him, and he was dodging her. Brooks said evidence will show that Cahoe threatened to kill Rose if she did not leave him alone. 
up, he said. In late November or early December, Rose and Cahoe had a blow-up at a party at the Monty House, a cooperative house at Michigan State University. An angry Rose rammed her van into Cahoe's brother's truck, Marky said. Billy Brown made sure that Rose gets home safely that night. He drives her back to Lansing himself. On December 6, 1993, Rose worked a night shift at the Meyer Pizzeria, a job that she had landed just a few months earlier. She leaves the pizzeria about 11.30 p.m. and she heads home. She goes through the door wearing a new oversized brown coat with a fashionable, lab- fashionable label and a matching knit cap pulled down over her brown shoulder-length hair. Her brother, Jamie, who was 16 at the time, was asleep on the living room couch. She threw a hat at me and said, I bought this for you, Larner said. It was a Florida State Seminole cap. Gonos. Went into the dining room, sat on the oak floor, and leaned against the wall. She dialed the phone as her little brother continued his nap on the patterned sofa. I remember her. I remember hearing her get kind of loud and kind of like half yell. A small argument, Larner said. I don't know what it was about. He doesn't even know who his sister spoke to. At some point that night, Rose uses a pencil to draw three perfect circles inside circles over the flat pink paint on her bedroom wall. Her mother, who was a painter by trade, had promised to do a psychedelic pattern there, and Rose wanted to push the project along. Rose told her brother that she loved him, and she walks out into the 32-degree December air. Said that a lot. She was like that when she gave us presents, Jamie said. So strolls a quarter mile west along dimly lit Miller Road to the Quality Dairy Convenience Store at Miller Road and MLK Junior Boulevard. Marky Marky worked nights there part-time, helping fill her 60-hour work week. That was my whole life, working my kids, she said. I wanted to give them the best. We didn't always spend a lot of time together, but we were a close family, close enough that I knew Rosie was in trouble that night. At 1.20 a.m., Rose showed up at the QD to check in with her mom before spending another night out with her friends. I told her the van was low on oil and I did not want her driving it, Marky said. But when Marky realized that Rose was walking in the chilly, damp night, she pushed her to take the 1980 white Chevy van after all. To bring it here, and I said I'd put oil in it, Marky recalls, I didn't want her walking. I just had a mother's feeling that this was one of those nights. Rose insisted on taking her urban hike and headed towards the door. I said, Rosie, I love you, Marky said. She said, I love you too. And then she left. Oh, the next morning around 8 a.m. on that Monday, Rosie Marky was awake in bed, wide awake, and had a tangle of nerves when her phone rings. She grabs it on the first ring, and Lansing Police Detective John Cowdy introduced himself. Marky wanted to talk to him about her only daughter, and she needed him to believe her. Rose Larner was missing, and Marky knew she was in trouble. I was afraid that he'd think she was a runaway. It was much more than that, Marky said. Then the more he believed me, the more scared I got. Cotty listened to her chilling tone for just a minute, but long enough to know. 
Something was terribly wrong, said Cotty, a cop for 24 years. Mothers know, and my gut told me something. That call touched off one of the longest, most extensive and intense criminal investigations that has ever taken place in Lansing. It launched a massive search for the 18-year-old whose body has not been found and likely never will be. The case, expected to go to trial on March 18th in Battle Creek, began in South Lansing in 1993 and nearly ended three years later in Nuevo Laredo, Mexico. That's where the Mexican police caught the man local investigators believe strangled the dismembered Rose the very night she vanished on December 7th, 1993. Prosecutors will try John Ortiz Cajo without the most important evidence of all, the body. He first spoke to the detectives. Six days had passed since she watched her daughter leave the QD convenience store where Marky worked at Miller Road. She punched out at 7 a.m. at the end of her night shift, and she headed straight home to her, to her two-story tan Cape Cod on Miller Road. It was a pit stop between jobs for the 37-year-old divorced mother of three, 60 to 80 hours a week, and slept when she could. I went straight to her room, Marky said. She wasn't there, and I was immediately concerned. So Marky, like I mentioned, who was a painter by trade, had to hurry off for her next job painting at the Alcoholics Anonymous office in the former Walter French School on Cedar Street. First, I went back to the QD and said, let me know if you see Rosie. She's, a no, she's no call, no show at home. Marky had an eerie feeling that night when she tried to talk Rosie into taking the family's white Chevy van out on the town. So roughly 24 hours later, after she finished the shift and she goes to do this long painting shift, she returns home early in the morning on December 8th, hoping to find her daughter in a familiar place, maybe talking on the phone in the family's dining room. Rose was a phone freak, an addict who spent hours on the phone every day. Rose was known to make up to 1,200 calls a month on the family's two lines, and monthly phone bills of $300 or more were common. I talked to people who changed their pager numbers because she drove them nuts, Cotty said. Rose wasn't home. There was still no sign of her. There was no note, no message, no dirty dishes in the sink. So Rose's father, Bill Larner II, gets a call in Bath. Rose said she was missing for 20-some hours. I didn't know where to look, so I checked up and down the streets, looked in every ditch, Larner said. Marky called Rose's friends, Carla and Charla Cummins, teens that she spent a lot of her time with. They said Rose's childhood friend, Bobby Brown, was gone too. She's probably with him, they told her. Marky called the Meyer Pizzeria on Pennsylvania Avenue to see when Rose was scheduled to work next. Employees told her that Rose had not shown up for work since Tuesday. So Rose, who was a pretty loyal worker, she was pretty on top of it, usually on time. She hadn't even called. Marky phones the Browns' house on Midwood Street and talked to his mother, Teresa Brown. She said she checked with Billy. The first thing Thursday, she called back. Billy wasn't with Rose. I told her Rose was still missing, and she said, Oh my God, someone must have gotten her. Which is, like, the worst thing you could say to someone who's, like, worried about their kid missing, I feel like. But, <sighs> fucking Teresa. 
read the room. He and her son Jamie went to the Lansing Police Department to report Rose missing. That same day, December 9th, Marky and her oldest son Bill searched Benjamin Davis Park for the head girl. We realized we were looking for a body, Marky said. My daughter and his sister's body. That night, Marky designed a missing persons poster with a picture of Rose that was taken at a family wedding that summer. As soon as I saw her picture on that poster, I knew we'd never see her again, Marky said. Ugh, it's devastating. Like, ugh. So that Friday was payday at Meyer, a day that typically got Rose out of bed really early. She loved getting paid, which who doesn't? She would get up and went to Meyer about 8 a.m. that day on December 10th, and Rose's $128 check was still there. So obviously at this point, panic is setting in and not really letting go. So Marky races to Kinko's Copies on Pennsylvania Avenue, and she prints off 50 posters showing her daughter's lipsticked smile. They gave her the flyers for free, and they wished her luck as she pinned them up at all the stores and the gas stations. Did building interiors all weekend, December 11th and 12th, and by Sunday she was in a frenzy. I had a breakdown. I went into paint and I started crying hysterically. I just couldn't stop, she said. Marky dialed Lansing police the next morning on Monday, December 13th, and Cotty later returns her call. Rose's phone fetish gave him the first sure clue that she was in real trouble. What the fuck? Wrapped ringing at the homes of Rose's friends. Beepers stopped beeping. Answering machines no longer were recording Rose's voice messages. People who talked to Rose daily had not heard from her since December 7th. Not a single word. You don't make that many calls and then just stop, Cotty said. She would call somebody. This is a small light signifying hope in her front window and vowed to leave it lit until Rose was found. Cotty asked questions, visited Billy Brown's house, and gathered dental records. Rose's friends thought that she might be with Brown, the blonde-haired boy she met in grade school at Maple Elementary. Brown's mother, Teresa, said that he was with John Ortiz Caho. Caho, a local rapper, had ended a relationship with Rose just less than two months before this and was trying hard to escape her attention. December 20th, Cotty headed up the first of nearly 50 searches for Rose's body. Lansing police combed Benjamin Davis Park and tips began trickling into the city's detective bureau. As the days turned to weeks, hope turned to dread. She'd call me if she needed me. She never did, her dad said. I knew deep down that something had happened, but I didn't know where or when. Marky found the simplest of tasks impossible. She couldn't work, sleep, even go to the grocery store. The pain of seeing mothers and daughters together was unbearable. Marky was losing weight and living minute to minute with the hope of news. Good news. Bad news. Any news. Helicopters searched South Lansing by air, and with the days ticking down to Christmas, Marley knew that the worst had happened. Rose would be home for her favorite holiday if she was able to. She wanted to get a tree up, Marky said. Crews combed an area bounded by Jolly Road, Wise Road, Wexford Drive, and Pelt Road. 
Nothing panned out, and I had no crime scene, Cotty said. She just disappeared off of the face of the earth. Dancing started to stir over the mystery, which was widely publicized as police asked South Lansing residents to help search for Rose. Cotty urged folks to mender through their own backyards to look for anything that might tell the police where she was or what might have happened to her. Tips start to come in. Somebody thought that they saw Rose at the Lansing Mall. Somebody else heard that she was beaten to death with a baseball bat. A tipster thought that she was in the St. John's, north of Lansing. One caller said Rose was in the river. Someone else simply said, you'll never find her. Cotty began hearing names, names confirming early hunches. These were Billy Brown and John Cahoe. They were close to 100 of them, Cotty said. Nobody had firsthand knowledge. They heard it at a party, or they heard it from so-and-so. He talked to Brown, who told him he didn't know where Rose was. I talked to him enough times to know I was talking to someone who was somehow involved. On a sign while he worked in the thickets at Moffat Park, where teens were known to gather. The four-piece-of-wall paneling wore a declaratory message next to a black-painted rose. The handwriting was roses. Part of it read, John is a whore. So psychics called Cotty, and more than one had envisioned Rose buried in a mound. Another said that there was something black around her neck. One saw the number 1108. Cotty need to find Rose at this point was bordering on obsession. He took his wife for motorcycle rides on his big Honda, and she'd say, You aren't looking for a body, are you? Cotty said. She'd get so mad. He met almost daily with Marky in the kitchen at her house. Marky smoked one cigarette after another as they brainstormed together. Marky looked through Rose's room for clues. She leafed through the Bible Rose kept at her bedside, and a slip of paper revealed itself. The prayer request was for John Cahoe, the dark man she was trying to woo back right up to the day that she disappeared. The prayer was asked to deliver him from sin, evil, and drugs, Marky said. She told Cotty about it, then tucked it away. The holidays began to come and go without her. A Valentine card from her family read, You may not be close at hand, but you're always close at heart. Love Mom, Bill, and Jamie. Three more searches by the air, ground, and water in March and April of 1994 turned up nothing but dog bones, swimming pool liners, and empty beer bottles. I thought we'd find a body in the springtime, Cotty said. It didn't happen. In May 1994, Cotty gets a call that Rose's body was dumped in a private gravel pit near Holt. The woman was sure Rose was killed there. Her body flung into the chocolate brown water from the end of a rope tied to an oak tree on the pit's steep bank. Cotty headed up a search, and on May 26, divers, detectives, and a German shepherd named Odin set up for a day-long exploration. Rose Markey could not stay away. Which I don't blame her. No, I'm coming. I'm, at, I'm about to watch. Odin, was the dog, was just one of four dogs in Michigan trained to smell body gases of people submerged in water, a search tactic common in Vietnam. The dog perched on the boat's bow and began to look out over the lake. I heard the dog howl, and I thought the body would just float right up there, Cotty said. Everything just got quiet. It was dead silent. 
Divers disappeared into the 30-foot deep waters, leaving only a swirl of air bubbles chasing on the surface. Lee's expression turned to stone, and she leaned against a maple tree for support. The suspense was thick. The answer wasn't there. The pit bottom was riddled with cinder blocks and debris that made the search impossible. Divers told Rose that he really thought she was down there, Cotty said. He was sure, too. All initials RL were sprayed into a cement drain just 20 yards from the water's edge. Our shirt found on the shore was just like the one that Rose wore. Cotty kept searching for clues, and the case consumed his work. He couldn't walk into the office without fellow detectives asking, Did you find Rose? He became the subject of ridicule and lancing, as people would say, Cotty will never find the body. A song was penned with Cotty as the subject. Billy told me that he and John made up a rap song. It said, Cotty was naughty, and it went on to talk about blood and body parts, he said. Cotty retired in May 1995, and Marky was devastated, worried that no other investigator would care about her case like he did. That was one of the hardest things I had to do in my 26-year career, Cotty said. I didn't want other Lansing detectives carry on the case, Lucius Hayward and John Hurstman, who head up a search in August of 1995. This time, in East Lansing. A search warrant let police dig up the basement of 48 MAC, the Monty House, a cooperative inhabited mostly by Michigan State University students. Crews used special tools to cut the concrete flooring where they thought maybe Rose's body was encased. She wasn't there. Shortly after that, Michigan State Police Detective Donald Brooks learned some valuable information about Lansing's missing person case. The morsel came from a confidential tipster. His 1995, he was leading the investigation. We went back to December 7, 1993 and reconstructed it from day one, he said. Billy said he wasn't involved. His parents said he wasn't involved. County prosecutor Donald Martin said Brooks had a challenge. Rose was dead and it was covered up. Somebody made a body disappeared and they destroyed evidence, he said. Adding to the mission, a core group of people who knew what had happened and worked hard to be sure the truth did not surface. They predicted the death of Rose Larner rather religiously, Martin said. They were noble and they weren't going to snitch perpetrated lies and they were willing to swear to made-up stories he said brooks who was one of lansing's top state police detectives learned about the breakup between rose and Caho. Caho, Caho, whatever he learned that rose was dogging her rapper ex and he learned that Caho was doing what he could to dodge her said he learned that Caho was impatient with rose's persistence then Brooks found a man who picked up Cahoe and Brown at a bus station. He told Brooks a story. The details were significant and very consistent with what we now have learned, Brooks said. This was a big break. He was sure Rose was killed in a house, but he didn't know which one. He inched towards the answer police sought for two years. Then in April 1996, he heard from Billy Brown. He wanted to talk. He knew his days were numbered, Brooks said.
Brown talks to Brooks, telling of a night involving drugs, sex, murder, and body parts inside the home of Cahoe's grandparents in Albion, 40 miles south of Lansing. The 20-year-old claimed he was not Rose's killer, but Cahoe was. Warrants followed, charging Brown and Cahoe's brother Tim with being accessories to murder. Cahoe was charged with murder. On April 14th, Brown turned himself in and appeared in court a day later for his arraignment. Cahoe was another matter. He was at large, and police knew his capture would not be easy. So a national manhunt begins. Local police head for Chicago, searching for the Cahoe, the 22-year-old graduate who spoke Spanish and had Texas ties. Cahoe, who once attended a federal fugitive, and local detectives turned to police in six other states, Mexico, and Canada to help find him. On April 15th, police searched the Albion home nestled beside a country road. John and Pearl Cahoe were winning in Arizona the night Brown says Rose was killed in their comfortable home. Inside of the white bathroom that cuts off just from the kitchen, crime lab experts found a single drop of blood. They later conclude through DNA testing that the blood was almost certainly roses. On April 24th, the case takes a turn. Detectives arrest Lansing's Robert Michael Wood, accusing him of planning to firebomb Billy Brown's house, Martin said. Martin said the motive was to get rid of the witness or intimidate. Investigators believe that there was going to be a firebombing at a minimum. East bomb making materials from his house at 814 Max Street in Wood, 23, was charged with possessions of bomb making devices. Police say they fire August. State police crime lab experts make a trip to Meredith, a tiny town in northern Michigan's Gladwin County, where police thought Rose's body might have been destroyed. John Kelsey, Calhoun County Assistant Prosecutor, said bone fragments were found there and they are being tested for a DNA match. The experts are trying to determine whether the bones are human and if they are, if they're roses. They are tiny charred pieces. You wouldn't look at them and say, gee, that looks like a piece of bone, he said. So the search for Cahoe continues and in August 1996, police followed his older brother, Tim, who was 26, from near Battle Creek to Nuevo Laredo, Mexico. Laredo? Nuevo Laredo? I'm probably not saying any of that wrong. I'm or correct. I'm so sorry. Um, to Nuevo Laredo, Mexico. And John Cahoe was at La Mina, a crowded bar and grill just south of the Texas border. It was late afternoon when the older Cahoe brother walked into the business and Mexican authorities pounced, ending the four-month manhunt. Talk about how detectives tracked Cahoe, except to say it was a combination of modern technology, surveillance, and confidential information. And it was unbelievable, extremely stressful. As soon as Cahoe was in custody, Brooks placed an important call. I said, Rose, can you talk, I said? We got him, Rose. We got him. Okay, so guys, part three is going to be about what actually happened. Um, and just giving you a warning, it does contain graphic and unsettling passages that some people might not want to read or hear. Um, the Lansing State Journal, with the support of Rose Larner's mother, has decided that all of this information is necessary for the complete sling of her daughter's story.
So this is what they are saying happened. Rose Larner pulled a brush through her wet brown hair and giggled nervously as John Ortiz Cahoe gently tugged from behind with a cord that caught her strong chin. Thinking her ex-boyfriend was playing around, she played along, slipping the line down around her neck. It was no game. According to testimony by Billy Brown, Rose's friend since grade school, he watched as Cahoe increased the tension, then yanked the cord tight, snuffing Rose's last breath. She fell to the floor, and Brown interrupted Cahoe's task only to ask why he was killing Rose. The bitch had to go, and that's what's going to happen, Cahoe told him. Minutes later, Rose was dead. There, in the brick ranch home in Albion owned by Cahoe's grandparents. The brush still in her hand. Her hair still damp from a shower that the three had shared. It was December 7th, 1993 maybe 5 a.m. 40 miles north in Lansing, Rose's mother was ringing up fountain drinks, cigarettes, and gasoline at the South Lansing Quality Dairy Store. Rose's brother, Jamie and Bill, were sleeping at their houses, oblivious to their sister's gruesome fate. Rose's family and the Lansing community would wait nearly three years. One man's story of how her life ended that night. Billy Brown's September 18, 1996 testimony in a Calhoun County courtroom told a saga of drugs, death, and deceit. Brown, who, who pleaded guilty to being an accessory after Rose's death, is expected to tell the same story again at Cohoe's trial, set for March 18th in Battle Creek Brown, awaiting sentencing. be one of 70 witnesses during the trial that could last over a month. Brown's explanation of Rose Larner's long, mysterious disappearance is widely dis disputed by Cahoe's Bloomfield Township lawyer, Jerome Sabata. The trial show who the real killer was, if she was killed at all, Sabata said. He says Cahoe did not kill Rose. Police, prosecutors, and Billy Brown say he did. Brown's story begins at his family's home at 2906 Midwood Street around 3 a.m. on December 7, 1993. Rose asked Brown to get a hold of Cahoe that day and arranged for the three of them to spend the evening together. So as we know, Cahoe and Rose had dated for a few months that summer, but his interest kind of waned off around late October, early November. Police say that Rose didn't really deal with rejection very well, and she spent the next month obviously dogging Cahoe, who hung out with Brown, who kept in touch with Rose, bring her to give Cahoe some space. Oh, Brown was said to be protective of Rose, you know, since they did grow up as childhood friends, but he couldn't convince Rose to leave Cahoe alone. So that night, the three left Russell Brown Sr.'s Midwood Street home around 3 a.m. riding in Cahoe's brother's white Chevy pickup. Brown said that Cahoe took them down an unfamiliar country dirt road. The truck stopped in the darkness, and Brown said Rose rested her head on his lap while she and Cahoe had sex in the cab of the late 1980s truck. They left there, and they stopped a short time later at a Meyer store near Albion, 40 miles south of Lansing. Cahoe goes inside alone, and he returns a half hour later with a bag heavy with items. 
He places it into the bed of the truck, and he tells Rose and Brown that he had things for the night's festivities. Brown later learns that that bag contained a fillet knife, two bottles of charcoal lighter fluid, a hatchet, and some trash bags. Drove to a house just outside of Albion, a small community of 10,066 people best known for its private college. Coho goes through a back door and he lets the other two in through the front. Brown assumed that they were just there to have sex and get high, just do your average party kind of things. He was ready with a night's supply of marijuana and cocaine. Coho and Rose had sex before all three stepped into the warm shower together. Brown says Coho reached for the shower ledge and tried handing him a fillet knife that he apparently had stashed there. There were funny looks exchanged and the knife was put back, Brown said. All three got dressed in the bathroom and Coho left as Brown and Rose brushed their hair. He came back holding a cord, slipped it around Rose's neck. Quit, John. Quit playing, Rose laughed. Coho then strangles her and Brown watched as he dragged the teen's five-foot, one-inch body into the white shower and sliced her throat with the new knife. Coho took a break from his job to do some cocaine with Brown in the bathroom. I told John I could tell this wasn't the first time that he had did this. He said, what do you think? I vomited and he kind of laughed at me. Coho, who was only wearing boxer shorts, rinsed pints of blood from Rose's body with a hose, then got a hatchet and a block of wood. Brown heard whacking and he saw Coho hacking. He started to take off her arms feet and her hands her head too brown said he came back with a foot sticking on a knife he held the head up like clash of the titans before he took it to the basement oh my god what a fucking sicko coho chucked her body parts into the basement fireplace burning them until mostly gray cinders remained you could still see the shape of the skull but most of it was ashes brown said then the doorbell rings Sammy, a friend of Coho's, was at the door. His girlfriend, too. The couple came inside and visited for about an hour, completely unaware that a woman's distant torso was stashed in the shower stall around the corner. We cleaned the house up, put the body in a trash can, grabbed some shovels, 10 gallons of gasoline, some trash bags, and left, Brown said. Men then loaded the garbage bin into a compact car that was owned by Coho's mother, and the two headed north. They drove 100 miles to Brown's family property on Island Lake in Meredith, Gwen County Retirement Community. It's far away and secluded. We were going to burn her up until there was nothing left, Brown said. No body, no crime. The sun was coming up and their headlights sliced the darkness as they arrived in the sleepy northern village dotted with satellite dishes, mobile homes, and wood piles. The car turned onto Ruby Drive, a narrow road surrounding the 75-acre lake, then stopped at its destination. A crooked wood wooden sign nailed to a tree confirmed their destination, Brown. Coho and Brown dug a hole in the ground and they laid a bed of logs in the pit. The men then unloaded Rose's midsection onto the pit, poured gasoline over the pile, and lit a fire. Orange flames quickly engulfed Rose's limbless body and a stream of smoke billowed over the quiet lake 
known for its virtual absence of crime. We've had one break in 25 years here, and that case was solved, said Ron Parkinson, a retired detective who lives across the lake from the Browns. The only noise you hear is an occasional horseshoe hitting a stake, and that disrupts the entire place. Rose burned for 10 hours. As the fire crackled on the hilly lot, Cahoe took some of her cooked flesh from the pit. He put it on a piece of bread with some mustard and ate it, Brown said. Just for the experience. Just to know. Ugh, you fucking cannibal. Hannibal. Ugh, that's gross. When the fire was spent, the men filled garbage bags with Rose's ashes and loaded them into the car. We spread the ashes along the roadside and highways all the way to Big Rapids, Brown said. He said Rose's ashes went into a dumpster at a rest area. Gaho's brother Tim lived in Big Rapids. They arrived there, dirty and tired. Tim asked, what'd you do with her? What happened? Brown said. John smiled. Tim said, never mind, I don't even want to know. Brown said Tim Cahoe was surprised to see gasoline, a hatchet, and shovels in the car. He said, don't worry about the stuff in the car. He would take care of it, Brown said. The three men sat in a bedroom and talked about an alibi. If asked by police, they would explain that they were at Tim Cahoe's place in Big Rapids the night that Rose vanished. Tim Cahoe's lawyer, Randy Lewis, said that his client is not guilty of being an accessory. Lewis said that his cross-examination of Brown at the September hearing showed that Tim Cahoe was unaware of the killing. He specifically stated that Tim Cahoe knew nothing about any homicide and had no involvement, Lewis said. Brown said that he and Cahoe spent two days with Tim in Big Rapids, then Tim drove them to the bus station in Grand Rapids, where they bought Greyhound tickets and boarded a bus for Florida, a break in the warm southern sun. Which is crazy for them to be like, oh, Tim knew nothing about it. Tim said, what did you do with her? So what do you mean? What would we have done with her, Tim, if she was alive? Fucking, what? That doesn't make sense. Two years later, on May 22nd, 1996, Rose Markey's search for the truth took her to a place she never imagined. She visited the Albion home of John and Pearl Cahoe, the place where police said her daughter spent her last moments. Markey had to see it, had to feel it, and she was hoping to find some peace there, peace that she couldn't grasp without her daughter's body to bury. The house nestled beside a country road was her only clarity. She walked through the front door and straight into the arms of a stranger. A tall and gentle John Cahoe embraced her. I think about you every day, the elderly man told her. We both have a tragedy. Marky cried and tried to soothe him. It's been terrible, she said. It's not your fault. Marky explained to Cahoe her need to see his home. She walked walk through the same rooms her daughter might have walked through. This is the closest I could come to Rosie, she said. I always wanted to be there when they found her, and I didn't get that. She walked through the clean ranch home, asking to see certain rooms, especially the bathroom. Marky walked slowly through that door, stopped, turned in a tight circle, and gazed. She took in every detail. Marky cautiously slid back the shower door and looked inside, tears flowing down her cheeks. Coho then took her to the basement so Marky could see the fireplace. 
Cahoe said that the ordeal has been overwhelming for him and his wife, who had last seen their grandson, John, on Christmas Day, 1993, 18 days after police say Rosie was killed in their home. He was late for Christmas dinner, Cahoe said, gesturing towards the dining room table, and he was really quiet. I try to carry on the best I can, but this is constantly on my mind. Six months after her Albion visit, Marky trudged through a new December snow at St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery in Lansing to visit a new granite memorial marked Rosie. It was the third anniversary of her disappearance. Marky wasn't by herself that day. I called Billy to see if he'd go with me, she said. He was the last one to see her alive, and I wanted to see if he was truly sorry. He agreed. Brown's brother, Russell, and two other friends went along, and the group, re group reminisced about Rose on their ride to the small open field where her stone lies. They were talking about the time they ran out of gas, and I had to go pick them up, Marky said with a soft laugh. And Billy talked about how Rosie was doing better than a bunch of the rest. She had a car and a job. When they reached the cemetery, Marky said Russell Brown placed a dozen yellow roses next to cold stone already adorned with a pine Christmas wreath left by an earlier visitor. Russell spent, Russell spent a quiet minute at the stone that marks nobody. He was talking to her, Marky said. Russell's brother was quieter. Billy didn't say much, but he did talk about Rose's gentle ways. Marky said he talked about her ability to forgive. He said that he knew that if Rosie was standing right there with us, she would say, I forgive you. Cahoe was convicted of Rose Larner's murder in April of 1997. Now 44, he's serving his sentence, life without the possibility of parole. Correctional facility in Lapeer. He's had five misconduct violations in state prison, including fighting, possession of dangerous contraband, and assault and battery. And that is the murder of Ruth Larner. Um, yeah, so obviously just awful. And I know that was kind of long, but I just loved this article so much and the way they broke it down timeline-wise. Um, really, really sad, you know. Young girl didn't, didn't realize how dangerous the situation was, you know thought that she could probably trust this guy no matter how many fights they got into no matter no matter how many evil things they said to each other um and it's a sad reality for a lot of women and men i mean toxic relationships are no joke you guys you've heard me talk about them before the importance of getting away from it the importance of having somebody that you can confide in um so this breaks my heart you know young young girl I will post the information for both of these articles in the show notes as well as some pictures on Instagram so that you guys can kind of put like a face to the name. Um, if you know of any other cases um, of toxic relationships or domestic abuse of any sort that you would like for me to cover and talk about, please send those over to me at suspectpodcast1 at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at suspectpodcast. Um, or my personal at Katie underscore Kennedy, K-E-N-N-E-D-D-Y. Um, you guys, I've been recording for like three hours, so I really uh, don't have much to say at the end of this episode per se. Your girl is hungry. I need to go cook some dinner. It's almost fucking 1 a.m. Um, 
So yeah, thank you guys for listening. Um, definitely go look at the links that I posted for the articles so that you can read through. This is an awful, awful fucking tragic story. Um, I do think like at the end though, like that's kind of beautiful. Like her mom having the heart to like still invite Billy. I mean, that's powerful. So I know I, I couldn't do that. So more power to Rose Markey for doing that. Wow. Anyways, thank you guys for listening. Um, I'm kind of out of breath after that. It's just a lot to take in, you know, even though I already knew the story. <laughs> um, thank you guys for listening. Please go follow the socials. Please leave me a rate and a review on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Send me over any suggestions, ideas, you know, the usual things I say at the end of every podcast episode podcast episode with a friend and if any of you listening are interested in being a guest on an episode reach out to me because I'm looking to start doing maybe one or two of those a month um so yeah if you are interested in covering a case or just coming on for commentary hit me up on social media or in the email or text me if you have my number (laughs) all right guys thank you so much for listening I love every single one of you go listen